This morning we continue on in Isaiah. In the first five chapters we, we finished last week were a preface to the book. And were they a little depressing? A L- little bit. You know, it, it ended with this, with no hope, with darkness, with the state of things that were and how the, the children of Israel were at that time. One author said darkness had closed in upon them. Grace has been exhausted. Nothing but judgment lies ahead. And that's where the the preface of Isaiah leaves us because the author is setting up the message of Isaiah and setting up that that in this darkness, in this despair that man would say there's no hope in, that God can break through and God can do a work. Can I I be a a Star Wars nerd for just a minute? (laughs) Some of you, Jeremiah, you'll love this conversation. So, so out of the first three movies, the real Star Wars movies, four, five, and six, uh, see, I already have alienated half of you right there. <laughs> There's this discussion about which movie is best, right? And, and there is no doubt that number five, Empire Strikes Back, is the worst. <laughs> Some of you are about to shoot me. Now, now, I know that there's not a lot of consensus on this, and people want to shoot me. Do, do you know why I don't like that one as much? The bad guy wins. How does it end? How does it end? What, where's Han Solo? Or Han Solo, depending on which character you listen to. He's, he's taking a nap. And um, <laughs> he's trying to get on the back of your phone. Darth Vader has won. It, and the, the rebellion is all but destroyed, it seems. And it's just a frustrating movie to me because it ends in darkness. It ends with seemingly no hope. Now, we knew, and at that point, when I remember seeing it, I'm like, oh, there's another movie. Of course, there's another. They're just setting up a third movie. This was just one giant advertisement for, for number six. And, and so number six comes on the scene. And what happens to number six? Han Solo's released. Darth Vader's destroyed. I, the, the good guys win. And so five was serving to set up six, right? Is that fair to say, even for you, you five lovers? Yeah. Um, it was setting up six. It was advancing the storyline. And in fact, it purposely left things dark so that way you could see the incredible greatness of the light for them. Now, I'm not talking that's good and evil, but, but for them, in, in a story, in, in liter- literary sense, it was setting up good to win over evil. That's a little bit of what we have in Isaiah. In the first five chapters, we end in despair. And if you want to equate it, and, and you know, you can, sorry for equating it with Star Wars, Han Solo's in Kryptonite, or, not Kryptonite, Carbonite, sorry, different movie. Um, <laughs> and, and Darth Vader's winning. That's where five ends. But chapter six that we get to today completely turns things around and completely sets the tone for where Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is going to end. Now, there's still going to be hard things in Isaiah. Isaiah's message was a difficult message of judgment, of, of if you don't repent, you die. I mean, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. But this chapter gives us hope because we see who is really in charge and who is really in control. Sometimes in life... We can get to situations where we, we feel the same way. It feels like life is just over. Life is ending. We don't know how, how things are going to continue. We're so frustrated, whether it be with this dark world we live in, Genesis 3 world, or whether it just be with our circumstances. But Isaiah 6 brings us back to reality. 
the reality of a God who is sovereign and holy. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, please. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, I did find a way to have this deep, commanding voice this morning, so this is sort of fun. Um, all I had to do was catch my daughter's cold, and, um, and we're good. Isaiah chapter 6, and let's study together and see how we see God's holiness, His supremacy, and His grace all in one chapter. Isaiah chapter 6. I'd like to start with the first four verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. We sang that in several of the songs this morning. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. We'll stop there with the first four verses and we'll break this morning up into to four different parts. This first part is Isaiah's encounter with God. He saw God. Isaiah saw the Lord. And as we relate this this morning, we want to relate this with Isaiah's call because what we're doing is we're jumping back now to the beginning of his ministry. And in this darkness, how does God prepare Isaiah? How does he call him and get him ready to be his minister? And the first thing that happens is we see that Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw him on his throne. He saw his holiness. Effective ministry always starts with encountering God. Always starts with encountering a holy, supreme, almighty God. If we are not at a place where we are so amazed at God and so amazed at his glory, we are ineffective to minister for him. Because we're not in touch with the foundation. Our hearts aren't right. And so this is where we start. And this is a beautiful text that... We've used, we, we sing about all the time and we've used in worship. But I'm, I'm hoping that the broader context of Isaiah helps us understand how powerful this hope is, this light is, the sovereignty of God is to a rebellious nation who has turned their back on him. It starts with in the year that King Uzziah died. And, and Isaiah gives us a, a, a point in history that we can, that we can tie this to. There, there's some reasons for this. I think the reason for this actually has to do with the, the, the subject of the text, not so much like so we know where to place it, but it does help. King Uzziah was the first king, if you remembered back to our introduction, the first king that Isaiah ministered under. And Uzziah was one of the great kings of Israel. He, he was king for 52 years over some of the most prosperous time in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the kingdom of Israel. But there were some problems with Uzziah. And, and so he had this prosperous time, and, and we know that he started out following God. Now, in Second Chronicles 26, and I'll read these to you, it says in verse 5, He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Good things, right? He's seeking the Lord. God makes him prosper. He's a good king. Judah is doing great. But then 11 verses later, we read this. But when he, being Uzziah, but when he was strong, he grew proud. Isn't that the way it is? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
So things are going well, prosperous, and Uzziah is starting to become proud. Look what I've done, like King Neb did. And, and, and look at all this. This is me. He grew proud to his destruction. For he went, listen to this, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And we read that and we're like, so? I go to church. I go into the... Understand, the temple, he entered into the altar, to the, to the inner sanctums of the temple, where only a priest was to go. Where God had given specific instructions, I am a holy, I am a righteous God, this is how you worship me, here's some instructions for how this happens. And Uzziah, full of himself, starts to think, I can do this. I, I, don't, need, I don't need a priest. Uh, let's just cut out the middleman. I'm going in and I'm giving in. But it was, it was disobedient to God. It was a function of his pride. And so at that point, his destruction was assured. And we see that while these were 52 prosperous years in Israel, by the end, under this kind of a king, they were a people that were devoid of a relationship with Yahweh a people that were just about their prosperity. We talked about in the first five, five chapters that. And they were just about stuff and they had lost their first love, their love for God. At the end of Uzziah's reign, and, and, and so Isaiah's bringing up this, this king that had failed. At the end of his reign, if you remember Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, he was coming to power. And Assyria had been weak, but this guy had his own pride issues and his own power issues, and he started taking over all the countries he could. And so this setting is Uzziah dies, who probably kept Assyria at bay. And so now the people of Israel, or the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, now have no king to keep them at bay. Um, Uzziah's son, Jotham, was not a strong king. And so the people now are worried. What do we do? It left open a power void that that left them open to invasion. We know that Uzziah also at the end of his reign, after he did this in the temple, he was given leprosy. If he was going to go into the temple unclean, God made him unclean and judged him. And he probably ended up dying of leprosy. All that from the first phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. But doesn't that help to, to know what's going on? And, and the reason I say that this is more, not so much about history as more about theme is where Isaiah goes from there. In the, king that Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the idea is this, that the king that failed has died, but there is a king that hasn't failed. There is a true king. And so the vision, and Isaiah shares a vision here, immediately goes to the king's throne room. Your king wasn't Uzziah, he's saying. Your king is Yahweh. And so he comes and he says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And he mentions three things. Sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And the throne refers to his kingship that he is who actually is sovereign here. Not Uzziah, but Yahweh. And then high and lifted up, that has to do with his sovereignty, his majesty, his dominion. High representing his character is above all things, lifted up that other nations and other people lift him up. And finally, the train of his robe filled the temple. Train, we're familiar with trains, right? And wedding dresses, 
the long trains that always get in the way up here and people are tripping over them. And so we assign someone to arrange them. You know, all, all that good stuff. I'm a guy. So sorry, all, all the ladies are like, how could you say that? Those trains are beautiful. Um, and train represented the hem or the bottom of the garment. And one of the things that we, we need to understand is the more prestige you had, the more glory you had, the longer your robe, the longer your train. And so when we read something like this, it's not saying, oh, it was a really big train. It's saying God is supreme. He is above all things. So much so, He has so much glory that the train of His robe fills the temple. And and He's going to go on to talk about glory in just a moment. And so when we read this, we should think of God's power, His majesty, the size of God. On the screen you have the, the text and I put in some highlights. Remember last week we talked about highlighting themes and gave out highlighters. I know there's a, a few more at the back if you're interested in those. Again, some people said, well, I, I was afraid that I, I couldn't get the highlights the same as yours. That's okay. This is, as you study God's Word, a way to, to understand it and remember it. So whenever you see things about God's attributes or His glory, I encourage you to highlight that in yellow. Down, down there on whole earth, I have that in blue because that really refers to his sovereignty and his supremacy. Um, there's overlap on these, but this is a chance for you to study God's word and interact with God's word. So we see him on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. And these are some sort of angelic beings. <clears throat> and as we look through Revelation and the Bible, there are a lot of different kinds of angelic beings. We're, there's going to be some cool stuff that we see when we are with, with Jesus in glory. And there's a variety because God is a creative God. In this case, the name seraphim means burning ones. And so uh, most, uh, most scholars think that somehow they, these beings had a, had a burning light, a glorious light about them. And they're flying above the, the king ready to serve him at his beck and call. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the idea there is humility. He covers his face because even though these are the burning seraphim, the burning ones, they don't compare to God's glory. And in the, in, in, in the presence of God's glory, they have to cover their face. Because God's glory isn't just above us. God's glory is above all angelic beings. I don't know if you've thought about that. He is far above the seraphim as he is us, as he is the little ant you stepped on on the way in. God's glory is supreme above all things. And this vision is showing that. The seraphim covered their face, covered their feet, representing their whole selves, their body, representing their activity. They're dedicated to God. Revelation 5.11 has another description that's very similar. And I think John, as he was writing Revelation, was also meditating on Isaiah and the Holy Spirit was using Isaiah in his heart. Revelation 5.11 says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And we see, even in Revelation, around the throne, just thousands of angelic beings praising God for His glory. And then we get to what we sang this morning. Verse 3. And one called to another. And so there's multiple ones there. And they're calling to each other. They're singing to each other. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
And we see that same song in Revelation. And, and I hope you were okay singing it today because we're going to be singing it for eternity as we praise God for His holiness. We can't get enough of it. And, and it starts with holy, holy, holy. And we have to understand what's going on here. For us, that might sound like repetition. Well, it is repetition. We're like, I don't like repetition. To the Hebrew literary mind, repetition served to multiply the effect. And so if you said someone was holy, that was great. But the superlative, you know, most holy or, or something like that would be holy, holy. And that's why we have the holy of holies, right? Because this is the holy place, but then the holy of holies, that's a superlative. This is the only time in the Old Testament where three superlatives are used in a row. And it's multiplied, and each one makes it stronger. And so this is the, the holiest of the holiest of the holy. And I, I can just picture Isaiah trying to, or, trying to write this down, and the seraphim trying to praise God. How do you put that into words? How do you put someone that is so far above us and so glorious, how do you worship that God? And so they said, holy, holy, holy. Holiness multiplied infinitely by holiness multiplied infinitely by holiness. That's the God we worship. And as we sing songs that have holy, holy, holy in it, we are proclaiming you are far above my puny little mind's concept of holiness because you are God and I am not. It refers to the fullness, the totality of holiness. God's holiness is to be worshipped. Let me read a few verses, other verses in the Old Testament about His holiness. Because there's, there's all these descriptions. It's, it's like the attributes of God. There's all these different ways of looking at the holiness of God. In Psalm 29, verse 2, we read, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. And God's holiness is described as splendor. Don't you sort of see that in the throne room scene? And in, in the Revelation song that we sang, it, it, there's a splendor there. In Exodus 15:11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. And so we have the, the, the adjective majestic used of His holiness. Splendor, majestic. In Isaiah 40, 25, a little bit later in this book, To whom then will you compare me? that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. And we see that His holiness is incomparable. It's incomparable. We can go on and on and on, but that's just a taste in the Old Testament of how God's holiness is viewed. And so then the, the verse goes on, and this is such a rich passage. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And we've talked about that. Yahweh of hosts, that he is a, that, that's an army term. He's the commander. The whole earth is full of His glory. And it's a description of the vastness of His glory. Everything on earth is touched by the glory of God. It's not just a view of His vastness, but also a reminder of His influence. His glory touches all. I said earlier in the service that we cannot come to terms with God's glory. We cannot see God's glory, His holiness, without being affected. And in this case, His glory touches the whole earth and everyone is a part of His glory. You might be thinking, everyone? Really? There's a few people that I know that don't seem to be about God's glory. But consider this. Everyone is about God's glory. 
to, to those that have repented and are following God, we show God's glory by showing His grace, by, by showing that we are sons and daughters of the King, that He can take a sinner such as I and He can redeem me. And that's showing His glory. But God also shows His glory through the wicked. And He shows His glory by judging the wicked, by showing His righteousness that He will not let wickedness go unchecked. And so everyone's about the glory of God. We just get to decide how we're about the glory of God. And so when we read a phrase, the whole earth is full of His glory, it's the vastness that describes Him, but also it describes His influence. His glory touches all. See, His glory isn't just shown in Yosemite. It's shown in Garden Grove. I just came from Yosemite. And you know the tunnel? You go out the tunnel and you're like, whoa! But I got to tell you, coming down Buaro, that's right. Because it's all God's glory. And so the question is, are we seeing this as God's glory? Are we seeing Him work? Are we seeing how He's at work in Garden Grove? Or are we selective in where we think God's glory is being shown? The whole earth is full of His glory. Verse 4 goes on, The foundations of His threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And we see here the power of this proclamation of His glory, of His holiness. The foundations of the threshold shook. And and they're shaking at the song, at the voice of Him who called as the seraphim. And so as they say, holy, 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 this is not some meek little mild song. This is powerful and it's shaking the room. Because God is powerful and glorious, glorious. His holiness is unmatched. The house was filled with smoke probably refers to that God often represented His presence with smoke or a cloud. So He is there with Isaiah. This is where Isaiah's call starts. King Uzziah is dead, but long live the King, Yahweh. And God chooses Isaiah, but He starts by saying, this is who I am. That's our start too. Earlier, I asked us to respond to God's holiness because that's the start for us being God's ministers, being God's ambassadors as we studied in 2 Corinthians. We've got to be in awe of God because He is holy, holy, holy. So then we go on to verse 5 and we see Isaiah's response. And point number 2 in your notes, Isaiah recognized his sin, he confessed it, and he was cleansed by God. And if we think of it in terms of of us and ministers, effective ministers are strongly aware of God's forgiveness in their own lives, of God's forgiving grace in their own lives. Verse 5, we see Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me. What a great response. He's in the presence of God. He sees pure holiness. He sees greatness. He sees glory and splendor. And he's like, boom, I'm a dead man. Woe is me. Because you can't see that and not realize, I am not holy. My glory does not fill the earth. My glory doesn't fill the temple. It doesn't even fill this room. Because I have no glory. But God does. We can learn so much from Isaiah's response. Woe is me. He goes on to say, for I am lost. Or I am ruined, some translations say. It's from the word, I am silenced. I actually like that translation a lot. 
I am silenced before God. I've got nothing to say except woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And we see Isaiah's response here. It's, it's one of conviction. It's one of being ruined, of being silenced, of being having his inner self revealed, the junk in his life revealed. And boy, if we're to be used by God, we've got to come to this place. This isn't fun. It's not easy to have your sin revealed by God, to confess your sin and to deal with that with God. But this is the necessary step. We cannot be ministers for God unless we've been touched by His grace. And to be touched by His grace, we have to be able to understand, woe is me. He is holy and I am not. Some other lessons from Isaiah here. I think it's interesting that, that he is ministering to a dark people, right? Chapters 1 through 5, we've, we've talked about how the depths that Judah has fallen to. And so the first thing he says is, man, Judah is awful, God. No, what's the first thing he says? I am a man of unclean lips. See, when we are truly beholding God, when we are truly seeing ourselves in light of God, at that moment, it's not about anyone else and their sin. It's about my sin and my unholiness. And when we run around criticizing others and and complaining about how others should be or thinking we're better than others, that's because we're not focusing on a holy God. We're focusing on a holy self, which isn't. And so many of our issues, our interrelational issues in a church can be solved if we would gaze on the holiness of God and let the Holy Spirit convict us of what's going on in our own lives. He sees himself as a sinner first, not what others have done. He then goes to, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and he recognizes the the sins of his nation. But the context is he's part of it. This isn't just us and them or me and them. This is us, and we need Christ. And he gives the reason, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. See, a good leader has to humbly recognize their own issues first. If we're to minister for God, we've got to make sure we're right with God. There's no way that we can get the speck out of other people's eyes unless the log is out of our eyes. And we've, we've got to understand this. We've got to learn from His example. And it, 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 if we're sitting here and as we go through sermons, you're thinking, oh man, that's a great point, Pastor Ron. I really hope so-and-so gets it. Then get it. Because it's, it's, you don't need to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. The Holy Spirit's really capable. Let's let the Holy Spirit work in our lives. Let's look inside. Isaiah recognized his sin. He confessed it and was cleansed by God. Verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. So this burning being grabs a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. The altar represents the sacrifice, the atonement for sin. We know now that the altar represents the cross and Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so he takes the coal from the altar 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What a beautiful picture of grace and forgiveness, of atonement that comes from the cross. And so Isaiah, woe is me. And and remember the tradition, if you come before a a king in an unworthy fashion, what, what could happen to you? You could die. You could be killed. And so Isaiah now is before the king. And they would have understand, understood the symbolism here. He's before the king in an unworthy fashion. He says, woe is me, because he deserves to be killed. And God, for people that say there's no grace in the Old Testament, they've never read the Old Testament. Because God, in his grace, says, I will atone for your sin. I will offer forgiveness. And he touches his lips symbolically getting him ready for ministry. Jeremiah had the same experience with his lips. And he said, All Lord God, in Jeremiah 1, 6-9, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And so this represented a cleansing, but with Jeremiah and Isaiah, it also represented God giving them the words, the message. But we've got to humble ourselves to be effective ministers, to be strongly, acutely aware of God's forgiving grace in our own lives. Ray Ortland writes this about about this verse. The most telling indicator that God's grace is renewing us is not when we say all the right things about His grace, but when we stop putting ourselves above others and even above God. I'm not that bad. In fact, I'm better than most. Hey, God's just lucky to have me for one whole hour every week. And we haven't been touched by His grace. We haven't been touched by His holiness. What's interesting, just to, to, to step back a little bit, this section also represents what God wanted to do with his people. And so Isaiah became an example for what God wanted to do with Judah. And, and again, chapters 1 through 5 are important to understand that darkness, that depravity that the, the people had fallen into. Now this, God uses Isaiah as an example to say, this is what I want to do for Judah. If they will confess, if they will repent, I want to, to atone for their sins and offer grace, and offer forgiveness. I'd like to pause for a moment. Just bow your heads. We're not done yet. Some of you thinking we're done. His response was, Woe in me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Just take a moment and and talk with God. and Say, God, show me where I am lost. Show me where I am unclean. Let's put this into practice. We've been confronted with His holiness. Now ask Him to search your heart and know your ways. Lord God, make us clean.
do whatever it takes to purify us, to root out the sin in our lives so we can be effective for you. In your name, amen. The passage goes on. I love this passage. We get to verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And this is the call. Isaiah is called by God. Effective ministers can't help but respond to God's presence with a willingness to do anything for Him. Effective ministers can't help but respond to God's presence with a willingness to do anything for Him. So Isaiah's just, he's seen God's holiness, His majesty, this incredible throne room. He's been on his face and realized the sin in his life and God has forgiven him. And now all he can do is, how can I serve you? What, what can I do for you? And so God says, whom shall I send who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, as we should, here I am, send me. See, now he's able to minister for God. Now he's able to speak because he's been cleansed. He's now aware of God's grace. He knows the hope that crushes darkness. And now he can share that with others. God wants clean vessels to use. But we have to come to an end of ourselves to get to this place. Here I am. Send me. That's when we're qualified. It's interesting in Luke 5, 8 through 11, we see Peter's call. And and in Peter's call, we see the same sequence. We see a, a, a woe and a forgiveness and then a call. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. And so Peter also was confronted with his sinfulness. And the result of that is he came back, left everything, and followed God. Because if God is so supreme above us, catch this, if, he's, he, if he has all glory and we don't, if he is holy and we aren't, if he is sovereign, which means his plan works and ours doesn't, how could we not follow him? To not offer ourselves at His service is to deny His kingship that Isaiah just saw. And so this is, a, this is a wholehearted saying, I am going to devote every part of my life to following God and doing His work. Now, now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that means everyone going out the room today needs to either be a pastor or a missionary. Because... We do God's work in every part of life. We make disciples in every part of life. The question is, are we willing to do God's work in every part of life? Are we willing to take a stand for God at our jobs? Are we willing to reach out to our neighbors even when we don't feel like talking to them and actually share the gospel with them? Are we willing? Hudson Taylor talks about a one-legged school teacher from Scotland that came to him to offer himself as a missionary in China. And Taylor said, with only one leg, you think you're going to be a missionary? He says, I don't see those with two legs going. His name was George Scott. He was accepted. <laughs> Sent out to the mission field. He was willing to use whatever he had to serve God. Dwight Moody wrote this. If I know my own heart today, I would rather die than live as I once did. 
a mere nominal Christian and not used by God in building up his kingdom. It seems a poor and empty life to live for the sake of self. Let us seek to be useful. Let us seek to be vessels meet for the master's use that God, the Holy Spirit, may shine fully through us. I challenge us to say, how can God shine fully through me this week? What can he do? There are so many times where we are so consumed by our own plans and self, and and myself included, that I, I don't even think of doing certain things for God because I'm busy. I have things to do. I have things, places to go, people to see. And the lesson from Isaiah is when we're truly confronted with God, we can't help but do everything for God and to be completely available for Him. Now he goes on in the next few verses. So that's where most messages on this chapter stop. Because then we can go out and do all things for God. But then 9 through 13, God goes on to tell Isaiah, it's going to stink. It's going to be hard. The message is going to be difficult. And so God asks Isaiah to share a difficult message. And, and, and the lesson for us is effective ministers do God's work even if it is hard or unpopular. Now listen to these verses because this isn't all sunshine and roses. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it was felled. Encouraging message, right? Because serving God is always easy. No, it's not. The message of Isaiah also is to speak the truth. Speak it in love, but to speak God's truth, even when it's unpopular, even when it's hard. The first two verses, 9 and 10, there are quoted at least five times in the New Testament, over and over, usually whenever people were unresponsive to the Word of God. And it can be hard to understand, and different translations do different things with this, but, but really the, the idea is, go speak God's message, And to some, they're going to hear it, but to those that are closed, they aren't going to hear it and it will make them harder. Have you ever had that experience where uh, many of you have children and sometimes (laughs) you're already laughing. (laughs) Sometimes you speak truth into your children's lives and they always respond cheerily and, and say, yes, dad. Sometimes though, no, 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 they don't. My... Well, mine do. No, just kidding. (laughs) See, I know you're going to go to them and say, have you ever disobeyed? No. Um, Sometimes I speak truth into their lives and they're like, no! This week I had one and I'm not going to tell you which. (laughs) And, And I was correcting them and saying, no, we don't do that. And they're like, but I want to. And I'm like, I don't care if you want to. It's what's right and wrong. I mean, and, and, and the more that I shared truth, the more stubborn they became. And they ended up stomping off to the room and that it created some other discipline 
opportunities. And, um, <laughs> but we're a stubborn people, right? And sometimes when people confront us on sin, instead of repenting, we dig our heels in and we get more firm in our stubbornness and in our rebellion. That's what he's talking about in verses 9 and 10. That's what we see how Jesus uses it in the New Testament and some of the apostles in the New Testament. When he says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. It's the dilemma of the, the preacher that those who resist the truth can only be changed with the truth, but when you tell them the truth, they resist the truth. Catch that? Just make your head hurt this morning a little bit. <laughs> because we resist the truth. And God is saying, say it anyway. Tell them the truth anyway. Yes, by you telling the truth, you are going to deepen their rebellion. He could have gone and said, you know what, God has spoken to me and we're going to have 20 more years of plenty and crops are going to be good and health is going to be good and everyone would have flocked to him and said, you're an amazing prophet. But that would have been lying. And instead he went and said, you are a rebellious people who have turned your back on God and he will take your land from you. And nobody put him on their shoulders and paraded him through the streets after that message. It's interesting. Verse 10, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. You have heart. You have eyes. You have ears. Their whole self is in rebellion. See, they will go on seeing and hearing, but yet they will not have understanding or knowledge. They will turn from God. And at this point, that's God's intention. He's like, go tell them the truth because it's time for my glory to be shown in my judgment of sin. This is a hard message. Jeremiah in verse 11 says, How long, O Lord? There's all kinds of debate. Is this how long do I need to keep saying this message? Or it could be how long before this... this, um, Exile ends. The scholars were like, does it really matter which one? Because they they both ended at the same time. (laughs) So, but he's saying, how long? It's a hard message. And the message goes back to God's judgment until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And he's referring to the exile. The exile that was going to happen within a few short years to northern, the northern kingdom Uh, or actually had already started with the northern kingdom, the exile that would happen in the next generation with the southern kingdom, with Babylon. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. So there will be a few people left, a tenth, but they're still going to be encountering God's judgment. But then the last line, and, and I would highlight this in green, which represents God's salvation, His redemption, hope. The holy seed is its stump. And to us, we're like, what does that mean? But remember, the branch out of the stump was referring to the Messiah. This is referring to the Messiah again. And at the end, he says, the stump is still there. The people of Israel are, are still going to survive this. 
And out of that is going to come the seed that will bring salvation. And so at the end of of judgment, at the end of this call, is a call to remember the Messiah. That grace is coming. The Messiah will still come. So there's hope in the middle of darkness. Hope that crushes darkness. Isaiah was called to a difficult message. To a difficult people at a difficult time. Sound familiar? We, we feel like we live in that today. And we today are called to stand firm on God's word and God's truth. Albert Moeller, in describing the moral revolution this week, said, the moral revelation is going to demand a choice. It's going to demand a choice. Are you for me or against me? There will be no room for neutral ground. And I agree with him. I think he's absolutely right. We're seeing that all over the country. Maybe not in Texas, but no. (laughs) We're seeing that all over the country, right? Where we are demanded to either be pro-LGBT, did I get the letters right? Um, Close enough. Or against. And there won't be a middle ground. And if we're against the moral revolution, we're, we're labeled bigots, intolerant. It's a scary world. And understand this. In terms of the church, I welcome it. Not because of the cultural demise, because it will demand us to take a stand for truth. And the church in America has often been apathetic lately about truth. And we've been apathetic about we're a Christian nation so we don't have to know what we believe and we don't have to stand for morals. But this is going to force us, village, this is going to force us to know what we believe, to know how to defend it, and to choose, am I on God's side or not? That's a good thing. The church flourishes under persecution because self is stripped away and what we're left with is a people willing to follow God for his truth. Isaiah's message was hard. Our message is hard. We will be ridiculed. We will be scorned. Bring it on. Because it's God's message. Coming back, full circle. How did Isaiah 6 start? I see Yahweh on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. His glory covers the whole earth. Holy, holy, holy. And then a response of woe is me and experiencing his forgiveness so I'll do anything for him. That's what enables us to stand against a a depraved culture. That's what enables us to have a hard message that is true. Knowing that we serve a holy, righteous, sovereign God. We are all on mission. We are all on mission. No matter what you're doing. Some of you, I know, some of you in this room want to be pastors. Are you willing to let God crush the self out of your heart? Are you willing to do anything for God? Are you willing to do the hard things? But that's not just a message for for pastors. Because some of you go to work tomorrow morning. Are you willing to say the right things and stand for truth? Are you willing to let God crush the self out of your heart? 
to where we stand before a holy God and say, make me holy. By the blood of the cross, make me holy. C.T. Studd was a popular cricket player, a very good cricket player, probably had a professional future. But God touched his heart and grabbed his soul. And he gave that up to go to China Inland Mission and worked for years and years in China. And then he started Heart of Africa Mission. I think he liked, liked interior missions on different continents. Thousands of people accepted Christ because of his work. Because he was willing to give up self and what he wanted to do and do anything for God. His wife joined him on that, but often was separated with him. They experienced sickness. They experienced loss of children. But he was willing to do anything for God. His motto was this, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Let me read that again. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's the message I think of Isaiah 6. If God is sovereign and he's king and he's holy and he's glorious, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Bottom of your notes, I have, what do we learn about God? A couple things. I think, I think they just scream out of the text. So these, these aren't going to be new. The first is that he is holy, holy, holy. And his glory is beyond compare. We see that he is sovereign king. But we also see he will not tolerate sin but gives grace to atone for confessed sin. What a picture of God. Let it impact you today. I'd like to pray and the God who is holy above holies above all holies. Lord God, we worship you. We respond to your character to who you are, Lord. Help us to learn from Isaiah's call. Help us to respond as he did rather than a hardening of a heart. We all respond to your holiness, but but some will respond by taking hold of your grace and others will respond by being entrenched in rebellion. Lord, may we be the first that say, here am I, send me, that let you cleanse us, that are willing to do anything for you, even if it's hard. Thank you for your word, God. In Jesus' name, amen.